Over the past two years, nuclear weapons and the fear of nuclear war are again front page news. 2017 saw threats of nuclear war against North Korea by US President Donald Trump and declarations by North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un expressing his willingness to attack the US homeland with nuclear missiles. For the first time since the 1980s and the heydays of the Cold War, the world is facing the prospects of nuclear confrontation. The concern is not reserved to Asia alone. Last year's announcement that the US and Russia are walking away from the 1987 Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, an arms control treaty that actually helped end the Cold War, has additionally led to fears of a new nuclear arms race in Europe. Today, all the major nuclear powers are in the process of modernizing their nuclear weapon arsenals. Consequently, experts are re-examining the continuing and some say renewed importance of nuclear weapons in international politics and military strategy. My name is Franz Stefangadi and welcome to another episode of the EWI podcast. We are very fortunate to have with us today Alexander Lanoshka, a nuclear strategy expert and author who will help us explore this pressing question. Alexander, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Dr. Lanoshka is an assistant professor of international relations at the University of Waterloo. His research agenda encompasses international security, alliance politics, and theories of war, with a special focus on Central and Northeastern Europe. He has published articles in such journals as International Security, International Affairs, Security Studies, and the Non-Proliferation Review. Dr. Lanoshka also recently published a new book, Atomic Assurance, the Alliance Politics of Nuclear Proliferation. Today, I would like to kick off our discussion to understand the relationship between a country's nuclear strategy and security policy. In other words, once a country has acquired nuclear weapons, it seems to matter very little how it deploys its weapons and under what circumstances it would launch them. I guess implicit in this nonchalant attitude of some policymakers is that nuclear weapons will never be used no matter what the circumstances. How confident, Alexander, are you that nations will not use nuclear weapons? Well, there are two senses to that question. So nuclear weapons are being used on a daily basis almost constantly in the sense that states are practicing or believed to be practicing nuclear deterrence. They think that by having nuclear weapons, they are assuring themselves of their own security such that they're not subject to the blackmail of other countries and might forestall large-scale territorial aggression. But I think the sense that you really are trying to get at is whether, in fact, nuclear weapons will be used in the more folk sense of the term, meaning that they'll be detonated on enemy soil. We don't know. I, I can't tell you, of course, uh, nor can anyone, for that matter, tell you whether nuclear weapons will be used. I'm surprised, quite frankly, that in the last 70 or so years that they have not been used whatsoever. But I suspect that not much will happen in the sense that nuclear weapons would be used. I think there are very strong incentives as to um, leaders refraining from nuclear weapons use. No one wants to be the first ones in Hiroshima and Nagasaki to use them. I'm not sure what this actually means for international politics. There's a big debate in international relations scholarship as to uh, what meaning there is to the so-called nuclear revolution. Some would argue that it completely pacifies great power relations start to avoid major wars of the sort we saw in the First and Second World War. I'm not so sure, but I'm reasonably confident that leaders know that nuclear weapons are so fundamentally distasteful that they will not use them, but we don't know. 
And that's where it gets very tricky as to whether you'll be disincentivized to use them. So that threat, the potential use, ultimately is what makes, I think, nuclear deterrence workable. Well, so you are just mentioning nuclear deterrence. Can you perhaps first explain to our audience what specifically you mean by nuclear deterrence? And also maybe fit this into a response to my other question, which is how does a specific nuclear strategy amplify a reduced importance of nuclear weapons? In other words, how does nuclear strategy really fit into all this? Does it increase or reduce the chances of a nuclear confrontation depending on what kind of nuclear strategy a country chooses? Sure. So Bernard Brody famously said in the 1940s that with the advent of nuclear weapons in 1945, that the, the task of military establishments is not to fight wars, but to avert them. And by that, he meant that the use of nuclear weapons would be so devastating uh, for anyone's side that potential aggressors would desist from using them at all. And nuclear deterrence sort of hinges on this wager that no country would willingly start a war or some sort of major confrontation of the sort, again, that we saw in the First and Second World Wars, because the threat of nuclear retaliation is real enough such that unacceptable costs would be imposed upon them. They backwards induced from this line of thinking, they would say, you know, the game's not worth a candle, we're not going to fight. That's basically deterrence theory in a nutshell with respect to nuclear weapons, that nuclear weapons sort of raise the cost to unacceptably high levels, and so countries desist from attacking one another, as long as both of them have, of course, uh, survivable second-strike capabilities, that they can absorb a nuclear strike and retaliate with their own nuclear weapons in turn. Now, there's some variation, of course, amongst countries that have nuclear weapons. There is variation and nuclear weapon postures, as well as the military strategies that countries have. So, for example, when we think about the Cold War, the United States and its partners in Western Europe face a very asymmetrical situation in the sense that the Soviet Union, the Warsaw Pact forces, had a conventional military advantage in Central Europe, whereas the Americans had, of course, a nuclear monopoly in the first few years of the Cold War, only to lose it, but they still retained some superiority. So. Their military strategy was affected by more or less this uh, larger strategic calculus, that they need to depend more than they perhaps otherwise would prefer on nuclear weapons to compensate for this military disadvantage that they face on the continent. And so they had to acquire more nuclear weapons, adopt a more ambiguous posture as to when or whether they would use them, whereas the Soviets didn't really feel those sorts of constraints, at least not initially. And so they were able to renounce the first use. They still acquired a massive stockpile, but that came a little later in the Cold War. So military strategies with respect to nuclear weapons do hinge to some degree on the conventional military balance. And that helps produce some of the variation that we see across space and time and how countries adopt these sorts of weapon systems or think about like, what sort of doctrines are appropriate for their use. In your book, you essentially make two claims. The first claim is that military alliances are important tools for reducing the risk of nuclear proliferation. For example, the U.S. has extended its nuclear umbrella to allies such as Germany and Japan. It guarantees these countries' protection with nuclear weapons against foreign aggressors so that they do not need to develop their own nuclear weapons. 
At the same time, you say alliances are more susceptible to breakdown and credibility concerns. What do you specifically mean here by credibility concerns? And how is this connected to the spread of nuclear weapons? So the classic problem in world politics is that there's no central authority that exists to make laws, enforce laws, and punish those states that break those rules. And so countries are left with their own devices, but they might not be able to face the threats that they confront alone. They might be militarily weak or just might not have the wherewithal or the willingness. And so they might have to depend on countries that do not necessarily have identical interests, but similar enough interests to form some sort of alliance. But the problem that I just identified carries over to alliance arrangements. Do you know, for instance, whether your ally will really come to your aid in the event of a militarized crisis? They might say in peacetime, sure, of course, I'll support you. But when the going gets rough, when costs are going to be incurred, they might just back out. And so that threat of abandonment becomes very salient for any one state that faces a particularly severe threat. They cannot be assured necessarily that their patron or their ally will really come to their defense. And so we have a bit of an issue, though, in the sense that it's fundamentally irrational to ever believe that your ally will come to your defense for the reasons that I just gave. But if people argue that these abandonment concerns fuel nuclear proliferation insofar as you want to have your own nuclear weapons because you can't rely on others and nuclear weapons are the absolute weapon, they assure your security, then if abandonment concerns are constant in international politics because of anarchy, because of lack of central authority in international politics, then we should see widespread nuclear weapons around the international system. And many countries should have them. What I argue in the book is that credibility concerns really hinge on whether a country has in-theater conventional military deployments or other military deployments that make it really hard for a potential adversary to aggress against an ally. In other words, does the security guarantor, the country that's providing the alliance commitment, have enough skin in the game such that if its own guys get killed, it would escalate on their behalf? Or has enough military wherewithal to cause problems on the ground for the adversary? That in turn will assure the ally that in fact, you know, despite what we might think about the lack of credibility of alliance commitments as such, they might still cause enough problems for the adversary so that the guarantee is still sound all the same, or just sound enough, just stable enough that the adversary will think twice and the military balance is such that the ally will uh, be more or less at peace. Could you sketch out a scenario where this would be applicable or provide an example of what you just described? Sure. So the best classic example is that of South Korea in the 1960s and the 1970s. You can even argue that it exists today, and certainly it does to some extent. But in the 1960s, South Korea faced a very unfavorable military balance vis-a-vis North Korea. We think of South Korea being stronger than the North, which is the case today, but that was, in fact, not the case back in the 1960s. 
And certainly North Korea was much more industrialized, had a much more capable military, but even beyond that, had the backing, or so it appeared, of China and the Soviet Union. So the South Koreans could not defend themselves without the support of the United States. And indeed, the United States had about 60,000 troops in South Korea to deter North Korean aggression. So long as those American troops were on the ground, then the South Korean leadership was assured that the United States had enough again, skin in the game, but also combat credible forces to cause North Korea problems should it decide to invade. So, so long as those American forces were present on the Korean Peninsula, then the security guarantee seemed rather robust, at least from the perspective of Seoul. However, when the United States was starting to lose in Vietnam, when the United States appeared to be retracting its military commitments from East Asia in light of domestic opinion, as well as economic woes at home, South Korea felt, well, maybe we can ride this out, but hopefully the Americans will not touch the security commitment to South Korea, or more specifically, withdraw troops. Nixon, the president of the United States at the time, did in fact withdraw troops from South Korea, 20,000 as a matter of fact, one-third of the total number. And again, in mind of the context, the South Korean leadership had very rational reasons to believe that even more troop uh, withdrawals were forthcoming. And so, with the belief that the American security guarantee was now under incredible duress, that uh, American troops were withdrawing, even though North Korea remains a threat and a much more powerful one at that, the South Koreans would have to, in their view at least, acquire nuclear weapons. So the second claim in your book is that although the United States has played a key role in enforcing a global non-proliferation regime, we should be careful not to attribute too much success to the United States. So what is the current non-proliferation regime and has the track record of the U.S. in the area of nuclear proliferation been exaggerated? Well, according to the literature, the track record as such has been that the United States has been a leader in cementing the nuclear non-proliferation uh, regime, that the United States has especially strong interest in ensuring that nuclear weapons do not spread. Those interests include uh, managing uh, uh, the activities of rogue states or would-be proliferators, ensuring that fissile materials do not spread, as in the case of the collapse of the former Soviet Union, and so forth. And of course, the United States is very able to act on these interests because of its capabilities and its alliance commitments, as well as the various uh, relationships that it has on various levels, be it a political, economic, uh, and military. There is a bit of an issue, though, in the sense that when we look at particular cases of nuclear reversal, meaning cases in which countries have tried to acquire nuclear weapons or have made movements towards nuclear weapons, that the United States seems to stand out as being exemplary in suppressing those efforts, and that it suppresses those efforts and in a very effective manner. And even though the process might have been very difficult for the United States, coercion in international politics is not easy, 
everyone agrees with that. The United States still managed to get its way by dint of its capabilities and its willingness to back non-proliferation norms and interests. That is true to a certain extent. The United States has been a key player, and I can't imagine the global nuclear non-proliferation regime in the same sort of form without the United States having implemented various laws to make it harder for countries to get certain nuclear materials. But on the inspection of some cases, we observe countries not necessarily deciding to back down from their nuclear weapons efforts because the United States told them to back down, but because they decided for various reasons, independent of U.S. pressure, that nuclear weapons were not worthwhile, either because their leaders had different beliefs about nuclear weapons and they came to power, and so adjusted those efforts, either because those leaders found that it was just too technically difficult to acquire nuclear weapons. Sometimes the cases themselves are very much misrepresented in the standard literature. So many American writers argue that West Germany had actual intent to acquire nuclear weapons over the 1960s. That is a dubious proposition at best. And so when we take a more nuanced view, we can still assign a role for the United States in making sure that nuclear weapons not spread, but we can also appreciate the importance of other factors that are independent, again, of what the United States was actually doing. So where do you currently see the biggest danger in terms of the spread of nuclear weapons worldwide? I'm rather sanguine about the prospects of nuclear proliferation amongst uh, U.S. allies, despite all the rhetoric uh, coming out of the White House, and that rhetoric is certainly worrisome. We have not really seen any systemic or major changes in American security guarantees, be they to uh, those countries in Europe or those uh, U.S. allies in East Asia. So I don't see the threat of nuclear proliferation as intense in those regions, as I do, let's say, in the Middle East, where I think Saudi Arabia presents the most real nuclear proliferation risks, outside of, of course, North Korea and Iran. Saudi Arabia stands out in my mind because it has the intent and seems to have the ability to procure funds, to play the nuclear market, and recently has signed a nuclear cooperation agreement of some sort with the United States, one that is hazy to most observers because the Trump administration has not exactly been forthcoming about the details of this agreement, uh, but I would see them as the most likely proliferation risks. Interestingly, they're not a formal defense partner of the United States, so they might be acting on a very different logic than that which I described, but it could also be the case that because they don't have a formal defense treaty alliance and because they've already exhausted the sorts of arms transfers uh, that they could get or, uh, or they feel is necessary from the United States already, they're sort of reaching for the next tool to ensure their own security vis-a-vis Iran. So do you think if Iran would go nuclear, Saudi Arabia would follow, and as a consequence, the United States would be okay with Saudi Arabia becoming a nuclear power? To take the first question, this, the Crown Prince said himself that if Iran were to get nuclear weapons, then Saudi Arabia would, would fall suit. In so many words, that sort of removes any doubt in my mind about his intentions. 
that's more of a statement that we get in a lot of actual proliferation histories. There is a question about what the United States would do, and certainly some have argued that the United States should try to seek some sort of gold standard agreement with Saudi Arabia, whereby uh, the United States provides nuclear technologies but does not give uranium enrichment and reprocessing technologies. Some argue that such a gold standard would uh, not come to pass here because Saudi Arabia might reach out to other nuclear suppliers and so play the market to get what it wants. But there is this deeper question about, is the United States willing to tolerate nuclear proliferation? Some have argued that the United States has this very strong, unique interest in suppressing nuclear proliferation for very strategic reasons. It doesn't want other countries to get nuclear weapons because that undercuts America's ability to project power. But, again, when we take a more historical view, we do see instances of some decision-makers in D.C. using the nuclear card to balance against adversaries. So they're not necessarily intrinsically against nuclear proliferation. I have in mind here uh, Nixon's policy towards Japan in the early 1970s, when he would, in his interactions with Chinese decision-makers, talk about the possibility of a nuclear Japan. Obviously, this would get Chinese decision-makers very worried for reasons that should be obvious. And China was a victim of Japanese aggression in the Second World War. They played this game to balance against China, even though they were normalizing ties with China. I think there might be some decision-makers who approach these issues much the same way as Nixon Kissinger had, that will accept a little bit of risk of nuclear proliferation with a country like, say, Saudi Arabia, if that helps put additional pressure on Iran. So what you need for the United States to be very credible and, and effective in its nuclear nonproliferation uh, campaigns is for its foreign policy interests to be sufficiently aligned such that different values are at stake and that necessitates a firm line on nuclear nonproliferation. Which I assume is just not happening at the moment under the Trump administration from all we know, right? I mean, this is obviously a, a problem that has been happening over the past two years, particularly when it comes to Saudi Arabia, right? Presumably. What I have in mind, again, is what had happened with either South Korea or Taiwan in the 1970s. So this seems to be a story where the United States suppressed the efforts of those two allies, South Korea and Taiwan, because of the intrinsic reasons for why nuclear nonproliferation is desirable. You don't want to have allies going nuclear. That undercuts your uh, ability to project power, causes instability, and so forth. You go hard on the nuclear nonproliferation route with those two allies. But the other story is that, yes, as much as they did care about these things, at the time, the United States was engaged in an effort to reach out to China, build bridges, and in the spirit of rapprochement, normalize diplomatic ties. And you can't really do a good job normalizing diplomatic ties if you're letting your treaty allies acquire nuclear weapons. So there was a very instrumental reason for the United States to clamp down hard, or at least try to clamp down very hard, on those two allies attempting to get nuclear weapons. 
Now, with respect to the current situation in the Middle East, what I suspect would have to happen is for a new team of leaders in Washington, D.C., or, or the same team just adopting very different beliefs about what should prevail in the Middle East and sort of use the spirit of rapprochement with Iran to clamp down on Saudi Arabia. And I suspect, actually, this could maybe happen in the future. As we draw to a close, I'd like to pose a final question. Looking forward, do you see any indication that the importance of nuclear weapons as the state's ultimate deterrent against foreign attack and invasion will be reduced in the foreseeable future? Stated another way, are there any new technologies and schemes that may help ensure nuclear weapons are never again front page news? I suspect that once the genie's out the bottle, it's out of the bottle. I'm not sure whether any other weapons would come to replace nuclear weapons or diminish their importance such that they become obsolete. It is true that the United States has become very capable in its conventional military, so it has to have somewhat similar effects on some dimensions. So consider, again, global strike or the fear that the United States could use its conventional uh, weapons to dislodge authoritarian rulers or what have you. Uh, without resorting to nuclear weapons. Some have argued that the United States could, in fact, adopt a no-first-use policy because its conventional military capabilities are so strong as to obviate it. But if the conventional military capabilities are so strong, as some critics say they are, critics of no-first-use, that is, uh, then presumably the political effects of those conventional military capabilities will be similar to, uh, to nuclear weapons. So it gets very tricky, and this goes down to the, like, the biggest question of them all, which is what is, what is in fact the role of uh, nuclear weapons in international politics, and what are the political effects of these weapons, which is a question of enormous controversy, as you can imagine, in, in academic circles, but one I don't think we'll ever have resolution. So with respect to new emerging technologies, I'm not even sure, because I don't know uh, how to think about these weapons in their 1950s incarnation rather than their present one. Well, thank you very much for this illuminating answer. I think to wrap this up, we can both agree that nuclear weapons are here to stay and that they will be subject of discussion for policymakers for some time in the future. Before we close the show, I'd like to again thank Alexander Lanoshka for sharing his insights from his new book, Atomic Assurance, The Alliance Politics of Nuclear Proliferation. Alexander, we sincerely appreciate your taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Remember to look for us on our website, SoundCloud and iTunes under the name of East West Institute, where you can listen, follow and subscribe so you won't miss our conversations. Thank you for listening.